and X. And uh, I had to make a difficult decision. You have to do this when you're when you're doing a nine-week overview of a very important book. And you have to make some tough calls as to what stories do we zoom in and focus on to keep up with the narrative, and, and which ones do I leave to you to get into and study for your personal Bible reading this time through Acts. I'm sure we'll have a proper exposition of Acts, the entire book, uh, down the road when our, our church team has grown into a, a full church and we have dozens of people that will actually track along with us and, and grow with us around that story. But for the purpose of our church plant and getting to where God wants us to go in these early stages, we need to take away some pretty important key notes from Acts that affect all of our church life because if we don't grow the right way from the beginning, we're not going to be the church that God has called us to be, right? And, and so Pastor Dennis and I, we are looking over Acts, we agreed, Acts chapter 9 must be uh, the heartbeat of our church. It must be uh, what we cover, and it's a proper flow of the story of Acts, or narrative, to use the, the, the proper term. And one of the reasons I love Acts 9 is because as you're going through this book, think like a skeptic with me for a moment. Okay, You, you find it hard to believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, impossible to believe, really, right? Because without faith, yeah. it's not possible. So you know, there's just no way. I've never seen someone raised from the dead. There's no way Jesus rose from the dead. This book of Acts is really just a nice PR move from the church. They kind of came up with all these stories to get the movement going, and they got a nice movement going. There's no doubt about it. But, but Jesus just isn't real. He's still dead. He's still in the tomb. The gospel isn't real. It's just it's a nice story. And we get to Acts 9, and we find irrefutable evidence to engage the skeptic and say, then how do you explain the life of Saul of Tarsus? There is just no explanation for what he experienced and how his life changed 180 degrees unless he actually encountered the risen Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to invite us as well to step in and, and feel free. If, if, if you're here this morning and you, or you're watching online and you say, I'm not sure I buy into all this. Um, or I'm just not sure that the resurrection really makes that big a difference. If I, if I am a Christian, I want to invite you to take a close look at what God is saying to us in Acts 9 and why this chapter changed Saul's life and offers the same kind of powerful change in our lives as well. But ironically... A good story starts out with some really sad news, with persecution happening in the church. If you have your Bible, turn to, to Acts 7, or well, really it's Acts 6 and 7, and uh, I won't read the passage for you, but you can just see from the headings in your, in your, um, in your Bible, after our, our message last week in Acts chapter 6, we saw the, the, the emergence of the deacons stepping up to serve an important need in the church and a problem in the church that could have escalated and caused division really it it unified the church and it brought forward movement but now we see persecution strengthening from outside the church and when Stephen one of those first deacons boldly speaks of the faith showing how Jesus is the Messiah and the religious leaders are wrong and they murdered the son of God they kill him they stoned him to death. The, the scripture even says that they covered their ears so they didn't have to hear another word that he was saying. 
and they violently murdered him. There was no trial. There was no uh, passing of, of condemnation. There was no Roman authority behind this move. It was simple mob-like behavior, grabbing him, dragging him out, and killing him. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we see something else. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul was there, and, and he actually had charge over the coats. So, you know, it gets really tiring and sweaty, and it's bloody work when you're bludgeoning someone to death with rocks. So, it, you know, it was kind of uh, custom for them to take, out their, take off their outer garments and put them aside so they don't get all bloody. And then they do their, their bloody work, and Saul's like, you know what? Go ahead, guys. You take care of the execution. I'm going to watch your robes. Keep it nice and clean for you. And he approves, thumbs up, this, this horrific execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, Saul was ravaging the church. And entered house after house, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it's, it seems like evil is winning quite handily here. Don't you agree? We, we see uh, the hand of evil literally picking up rocks, killing an innocent man. He, he's making a speech. That was his crime. And, and he was murdered for that. Uh, but then in addition, now Saul is emboldened, seeing, oh, wow, you know, we, we can actually make a difference and, and get rid of this, this way, these followers of Jesus, if we just shut them up. So we'll commit them to prison. We'll arrest them. We'll drag them out of the peace of their homes, uh, probably meeting as a church in these homes. And he's finding these gatherings. So, like, think of us today. At any moment, Saul could burst through the door with his goons and arrests us and carry us off to prison. What happens to the kids? No, no, not his problem. His focus is on eradicating this way of following Jesus. Judaism will win, Jesus will not. And it sure seems like he's doing a pretty good job of halting the movement. He is putting a damper on the gospel momentum. But Acts chapter 8 is a turning point in the story to show us that the gospel is actually doing exactly what Jesus intended for it to do from the beginning. Do you remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8? He says, beginning in Jerusalem, spread the gospel, make disciples, and then go to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to all the world. And so what happens here? The disciples are taking the gospel to Judea. And in um, chapter 8, verse 5, Philip goes down to Samaria, which, is, which was the capital of Old Testament Israel, when Israel and Judah split as the capital of the northern kingdom. So I thought this was an amazing thought. Um, it never occurred to me before. But have you ever thought how King Jesus reunited his people? under his flag, like no king of Israel was ever able to do. 
to perfectly unify the people and, and please God and serve as the perfect king. And there's even division and a split never to be healed. There's always resist, uh, um, um, opposition between Judah and, and Israel. And what does Jesus do? He says, first start in Jerusalem and then go to Samaria. I'm, I'm, I'm building my kingdom. I'm reunifying my kingdom. What man broke, I'm fixing. This is, the, this is the whole story. This is the narrative. See what Jesus is doing. He's on his throne. He's fully in control. And what's incredible is at the end of Acts chapter 7, when they're stoning Stephen and killing him, verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God miraculously allows Stephen to see Jesus. And he's about to die a really horrible, painful death. But he's not thinking about that. He sees the risen Savior. And that's all he can focus on. Look at what I see. He doesn't care if it takes off everyone in the room. His eyes are on Jesus. And Jesus is actively intervening. He's standing. He is working through his messenger right there in that moment. He's about to call him home. So I don't know if he's standing because he's interceding. He's standing because he's about to welcome Stephen home. He's standing because he's sovereign over the whole affairs. Yes, probably to all of that. He is not just sitting back watching his beloved get destroyed without a care in the world. He cares. He's involved. And he's going to use this event for good. Now, we get to Acts chapter 9. Let's see how Jesus takes his quote-unquote greatest obstacle in the gospel movement and turns him into his greatest instrument. He's the least likely missionary. Uh, that's the title of the message today, the least likely missionary. So let's read Acts 9, and I'll read 1 to 31, and then I'll, I'll unpack what are some key takeaways from it. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, Okay, they weren't called Christians yet, belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he's on a mission, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Arise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard a voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. FYI, that, that, that street is still in existence today. It's the oldest or one of the oldest streets where people are still living today. You can find it today. So, so skeptic, take notes. This is a real place. Go to the street called Straight. And in the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so they might gain, regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So, so don't send me to him. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized. He's, he's identifying with the Savior he opposed. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, said, Is this not the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is what the Jews do. When they don't know what to do with you and they can't shut you up, they try to kill you. It just happens over and over. But their plot became known to Saul. So the Jews were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, against the Hellenists. Okay, so the, so the, so the Greek-speaking Jewish population. But they were seeking to kill him. Again, there you go. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So God takes his biggest opponent, this terrorist of Christianity, and he turns him into his missionary. Mm. Wow. This is a true story. So praise God for this testimony that, that is written in third hand here. It's also shared in Acts 22 and 26. And Paul shares that, his personal testimony, when he's testifying before, uh, before the Jews in Jerusalem. And then also before the kings, uh, which is exactly what Jesus said he, he would do. But let, let's take away three truths from this story. Of this least likely missionary in Acts chapter 9. First of all, the plans of our king cannot be stopped. They can't be stopped. But, but Stephen is killed. His life is taken. That's no surprise to Jesus. He was actively standing and, and a part of that scene to speak through Stephen to advance the gospel, to sow those seeds that by his death, Christ would be glorified, and Stephen would be glorified as well. He would be brought home um, to his Savior and, and be given his 
um, his, his glorified body. The risen King Jesus is being glorified through persecution. And his servants are being obedient. And they're seeing fruit come from their efforts, even though they're being opposed. None of us like to be opposed. Not, not one of us. We don't like people thinking ill of us or, or making fun of us or ignoring us when we reach out to hand them a flyer. You know, I got I got to give Titus uh, some some big some big uh, kudos for this, buddy. Great job. You were handing out flyers to people, and some people just completely ignored you and walked by you, but you kept after it. Not proud of you. Yeah. Hey, that doesn't, that doesn't feel good when people ignore us. But you know what? God can work through that. It makes me think of the game of chess. Okay, so you see some two two chess masters sitting down, and okay, so so this analogy is going to fall short, and you'll see where it falls short, but. But, you know, you have the two chess masters, and they're just looking at the board, and they're watching the moves of their opponent, and then they make their move based on the move of their opponent. Or, perhaps they make a move hoping their opponent will make another move that they can, again, counter. So they're playing against their opponent. But, but Jesus is not playing chess here. He's the king on the throne. So we make our moves... And we don't even know it, but he's working through that every single time. He made each and every one of us with a different personality and family and, and location and calling in life and education and experience. And you say, hey, I chose to be here this morning because I wanted to be here. And, and, and I want to be a part of this church. And I'm excited what God is doing here. Great. But you're also here because Jesus wants you here. So it's both. Jesus wants you here, and I'm grateful that you also made the choice to get this morning and come to living hope. But make no mistake, Jesus is working through all this. And here is where even the greatest chess master will never have a hope of, of achieving what Jesus can do. He can change the heart of his opponent. So the person who is opposing him now is for him and is on his team. This, this blows my mind. He's the only king and captain who knows what the enemy will do, will allow him to make his move, and then will turn it for good every single time. Now, we might not always see the good, but trust me, the one who is overall and sees all, he is. So what does this mean for the gospel in the book of Acts and for today? Well, our hands can be bound, but the gospel can advance. We can be beaten, but it's just like fanning the flame. And the flame continues to move on. He can turn threats into praise. And that shouldn't surprise us because it was through the cross and the empty and the grave that he has, has secured deliverance for his people and healing and, 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 and joy and peace. We see the hope. We see that in chapter 8, verse 4, the disciples go about preaching. There is still opportunities for the gospel to be preached in that context and today as well. In chapter 8, verse 8, there was much joy in the cities that heard the gospel. So if God closes the door over here, the question is not, oh man, you know, the plan's all screwed up. This door's closed. No. Where is God working now? That's where he wants to send his joy and his peace. Not yet here. Now look over here. Because he's closing the door in Jerusalem, joy abounds now in Samaria. In chapter 9, verse 31, 
The church has peace and comfort and multiplies. God's spirit goes with us. He is working in us to make us more like Jesus, which means we'll be filled up with his fullness, his grace, his fruit of the spirit. This is still happening today. I like to use China as an example because um, it, it's, it's a, uh, a country that we're familiar with. Sure, there's other countries that, that persecute, you know, Myanmar and, and Bangladesh, but you know, most of us are not familiar with those countries, but China, okay, we've got to picture that on the map. It's a really huge country and, and they make pretty much everything that we own. Okay, so, you know, clothes and toys and, and everything else. But persecution is severe there. They monitor everything that people do. And, and they have practically no religious freedom although certain churches can meet under certain guidelines, but at any moment, the Communist Party can come in. But the gospel is advancing. There's an estimated 96 million Christ followers in, in China. 96 million. Do you know how many Communist Party members there are in China? About 90 million. So they're trying to stamp out the gospel and Open Doors USA says our best estimates for, for the persecuted church in China is that there are more followers of Christ in China, maybe more than 96 million, than the Communist Party. So who's really on the throne in China? Is it the Communist Party or is it our Lord Jesus? And if he's the king of China, he's the king here as well. And, and going back to our text, Jesus says, I'm going to show Saul what I want to do with him. I'm the king. He will take his call from me. And where he was looking for justification with his actions, in an instant, I'm going to show him who I am. And he will find that peace he was looking for by faith. Wow, that really helps me rethink the hardship that I go through preaching the gospel. Is it hardship? Well, compared to what a lot of people have gone through, it. It's really not that, but for me it's a big deal because this is the life that Christ has called me to walk. So, so I'm, I'm not going to downplay that there's no hardship in America. It is hard to be a follower of Jesus, whatever country you find yourself in. It is hard. But when I look with the eyes of Jesus and I see what can he bring to this situation through the suffering, and I look back at what he did in the book of Acts, God, give me more faith. And may I be willing to do whatever it takes to see the gospel go forward here. Am I willing to sacrifice it all? Am I willing to lay down my life so that others can find it? It's convicting. But the plans of our king will not be stopped. Now let's look at, at the evangelists here. This least likely witness who turned evangelist. That's our, that's our second takeaway. A transformed life. This is the miracle. Jesus confronts Paul about his sin. You see that in verses 1 through 9. Because Saul, or I call him Paul because that, that's his name as he's known by in the Greek-speaking world. Paul hates the church so badly. Hates them. And you have to ask yourself, why does he hate the church so badly? What are they doing to Saul? Did they hurt his family? Did they insult him? Did, did they egg his car or chariot back in the day? 
No. Why does he hate them so badly? Because he hates the Lord. He hates the risen Lord. And Jesus knows this. That's why he says, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't even talk about the church. Although, yes, he cares about the church and loves the church. He says, an attack on the church is an attack on me. These are my witnesses. Paul, what do you got against me? And, and he knows the answer, but, but Saul did not until that very moment. Oh, man, I'm seeing the risen Christ. He's blinding me as we speak. He has all authority, and I am sitting against him. So he falls to the ground. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who, whom you're persecuting, is, is his response. He fell to the ground. Makes me think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, which says, One day every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul was not going to Damascus planning to confess Jesus Christ as Lord that day. But Jesus, in his grace, met him, stopped him, said, I have something better for your life. You are headed towards destruction, and you think you found the purpose for your life. I'm going to rock your world. I'm going to show you myself. And that is the miracle in this story. And this is where we can all identify, right? It's not just Saul, who's the least likely missionary. Look around you. This room is, is half full of people who are least likely missionaries, right? What is God's grace that he should reveal himself to us and say, I am the risen Lord. I am the Savior of all. Will you believe and put your faith in me? I don't deserve to have Jesus to reveal himself to me. But through the Bible, he does today. The Bible is living and active. He is speaking even to you, if you're watching the recording, he's speaking to you. What do you have against me? We have sin in our heart. We are enemies of God. We are against him. That is the issue. The church is not the issue. And, and friends, how often do we hear from people, or maybe even ourselves, we, we, we talk bad about the church. Like the church maybe is, is ruler overall. Or it's the church that's done this to me. Or maybe Jesus is just guiding you through your journey. He is the one who calls. He is the one who confronts. His spirit works in Paul's heart. And he's a changed man. It says he goes three days in the dark without food or drink. His entire worldview is changing. He's processing all the scripture he knows from the Old Testament. Wow, it's, it's fulfilled in Jesus. This is real. Does that have time to eat or drink? He, he's trying to understand this new faith that he has. He can't deny it. Jesus is the risen Savior. And, and in that, he finds the hope and peace that he was looking for. Then in verses 20 to 22, you see, once he regains his eyesight, he goes out. He gets baptized. He proclaims Jesus. He preaches Jesus. He's the Son of God. You've got to believe in him. He's changed my life. He, he even proves to the Jews they can't refute it. How can you refute a powerful testimony like that? And that's what I want to encourage us all with today, church. You might not have seen a bright light from heaven. You might not have physically seen the risen Christ. And that's okay. Because that is not the biggest miracle that goes on here. 
It's the fact that Paul, Saul, was an enemy of God. And now he loves God with all his heart. That's a miracle. There's no way a terrorist is going to now fight for the other side. That's exactly what happens. That's who our Jesus is. And he does that every single day. And he's done that in your life, I hope and pray. And he's done that in mine. So let the power of your testimony be what glorifies God every single day of your life. There's going to be high moments. There's low moments. There will be moments in your life where God... God tugs on your heart to do a specific calling or task. Or, and, and you might feel, oh, I've never felt more connected to God in that moment. But remember, when you put your faith in Christ, you are perfectly connected through the Holy Spirit. And he's been with you ever since. And he's never left you. That is the greatest miracle. And the fact that he will continue to love us and we will spend eternity with him blows my mind. Do you have a story like that? I hope that you do. We also see that Jesus commissions Paul in verses 15 to 19. So God calls Ananias to help Saul regain his sight. And the Lord says, I have chosen him to carry my name before the Gentiles. Can, can any one of us say what Saul did to deserve this choice of Jesus? Absolutely nothing. He did everything to disqualify himself from God choosing him. But that's the funny thing about Jesus. He knows exactly what needs to happen, and he's going to do it. And it makes no sense to us from a logical perspective. It makes no sense to me logically why I am a child of God, and all these people driving by on the road, headed to the beach, headed to the golf course, headed to the mall, they have no clue that there's a God in heaven, and they have no clue about the gospel. Why did God choose me? And I can't answer that question apart from just saying he's a gracious God and he loved me and he pursued me that's what he does with his children he's a gracious God who chooses and commissions his missionaries and then he uses Ananias to carry that out he says I want you to go lay hands on him so I'm going to use the church to commission a missionary who was a terrorist it's, it's a complete ironic twist here and it makes me think, has there ever been a time in my life where I've tried to tell God what to do? Hey, God, I got this all figured out, okay? I got my plans. I got this timeline. You know, I think back to when I was in college, and then I went to grad school, and then this is what I thought ministry would be like. Well, actually, I didn't even want to go into ministry. My dad was a pastor. I wanted nothing to do with that. And, yeah, I'm good. I lived at the church, like, all the way up till. You know, what was the age of 12, I guess, when he started uh, as Bible professor. So I don't want to be a pastor, but junior year in college, God spoke to me. He says, I'm setting you apart for vocational ministry. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to pastor the flock. All right, Lord. Kind of ironic, but okay. So I, I can't say I'll never be a pastor because I am a pastor now, okay? And, and I'm sure if you look back on your life, there's been moments where you're like, yeah, I can see the future. I can see what this needs to be. And God has something completely different in store for you. But we should love that about him, right? right? His plan is best. Not mine. And if he closes the door, it's because he's a better one in store. There may be suffering involved. For Paul, there certainly was. Jesus was upfront with him about that. But it was also the path that leads to Jesus. So, eternity with Jesus and his hope and his peace and his joy and the fullness and abundance of life. 
with some suffering. Or you can have it your way. It's an eternity in hell apart from him. Yes, Lord, your way is best. We want what you want. Do you see yourself in this story? And have you allowed God to direct your life? Have you given that control to him? He might not have commissioned you in the same way that he commissioned Paul. But he should have complete control over your life that you are willingly giving him. It's a relationship. It's not just a, a master controlling robots here. He is in control. But he desires and wants and calls us to respond. He made us with souls and the ability to do that. So what if we gave God a blank page this morning? Said, God, I'm taking my agenda off the table. And I want to see what you want to do with my life. Here it is. You're the author of life. Take your pen and write my story. And watch what God can do. And that is absolutely what I have in mind for this church. I don't know what God has in store for this church, but we're giving him an open page. Just, I'm willing, God. I'm here. I'm available. I love you. And I want to see your church glorify your name here in North Sarasota. So would you write our story? He wrote Saul's story. And it's an incredible testimony to this day. To this day. And in the moment when we share the Lord's Supper together, we will celebrate the greatest story, the gospel. That we would have never expected because it involved a cruel death on the cross. But Jesus chose that path. And it brought blessing from God. Here's the third takeaway, and I'll be done. Don't discount the grace of God. Don't underestimate the grace of God. The early church could not believe their ears when they heard about Paul's salvation. There's just no way. There's no way this terrorist is now one of us. He's being sneaky. He's trying to arrest us. He's going to haul us off to jail. So, yeah, I, I'm just not buying it. So Ananias says in Acts 9, 13 and 14, Lord, he's evil. <laughs> He is evil. And he has authority to throw us in jail. Yes. Okay. He is evil. He has authority. But, but Ananias, I've got it. Trust me. My grace is bigger than his, I was going to say evilness, but let's say wickedness. My grace is greater. And verses 26 to 28, this is almost hilarious. Because this is so human nature. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Can you just picture it? He shows up, tries to show up at a house church, and everybody runs. Everybody splits off. We're hey, Saul's coming. Like, they tear down. They, they don't even have a microphone system, right, back in the day. But they probably had some kind of setup, fellowship meal, whatever. They scatter, and they act like, no, no, there, there's no church meeting here. I don't know what you're talking about. No one wanted to see this guy game of hide and seek going on but Barnabas there was one Barnabas was really a nickname he was, he was called encourager that's what Barnabas means he said you know what I see the change in Saul I took the time to hear his story and he brought him to the disciples and the apostles the head of the church um, in Jerusalem he said hey you gotta hear his story just sit down and listen to his story it's amazing it's, it's too good to be true if I was, if I was a human author but don't discount the grace of God. 
and look at what he has done. And then it turns out that Saul actually is an encouragement to the church. He blesses the church. He encourages the church. He preaches and serves and, and ministers to the church. So I guess if there's one takeaway from here is be prepared for God to do the unexpected. Just be prepared. I got the call. I got a call just the other day from a pastor in the area, and and their church was was very generous in their giving uh, over the year's end, and they had money left over that they wanted to give to certain ministries and new churches starting up. So he said, "Hey, we would like to send you guys a check, and it's a sizable check. We just want to bless you guys. We believe in what you're doing. We want to encourage you. And and where do I mail it to? I did not expect that call." I did not ask for that check. It's a completely unexpected gift of grace. God gave it. And what I look forward to even more is one day getting a call or talking to someone after the worship service and someone comes to Christ because of the ministry of this church. Or, or someone says, I, I need to be baptized. Or the word was convicting me this morning. I need to let go of this sin. Oh, I, I didn't even know you were struggling with that sin. Really? Because it seemed like God was speaking right through you to me. Be prepared for God to do the unexpected. And the miraculous that we're looking for is a changed life. It's going to catch us off guard. It might be a, a, a hardened sinner that walks into here. Someone who's been engaged in, in witchcraft, the occult, is addicted to substances, has been an abuser. Someone you would not expect. To be humble and repentant. But church, if we believe that King Jesus sent us here, there are hardened sinners in this area that he is going to bring to repentance. Be ready to see it. We won't be ready. But we, but we need to be. This is my challenge to us. And remember that time when God showed you grace? We find it so hard to show grace to others because of what they've done in their past. And yet we kind of get this gospel amnesia that I was just as evil as Saul when God saved me. Sure, I might not have done those exact terrible things that he did, but God is no respecter of persons. So you could have gone to church your whole life and been a pretty good person, but if you don't love God, you are just as wicked as Saul. And I was too. That's why the gospel is such a big deal. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us. No one was born a Christian. No one was born into God's family with a new heart. It's a new birth that must come by the Spirit of God. And how does that happen? When people encounter Jesus through his word. And you and I have the privilege to share that with them. And the most powerful witness is you sharing the word, but, but also accompanying it with your story. I've seen the risen Christ with the eyes of faith. Let me tell you about it. So let's not focus just on ourselves this morning. Let's not look at others to, to use their gifts to help us. Am I showing grace to others? Am I patient and encouraging and helping others? Am I inviting others? The church is here to serve others. Just asking Ananias. Go lay hands on Saul. That's why we're here. We're here to love the sinner. We're here to love the saints as well. As, as I look around our church here, and I, and I look at these little children, you know, what, what a gift that they are. Might not always sound like it. You know, there's growing pains. 
There's noise. There's, there's discomfort. But they're future missionaries for Christ. That's right. Don't discount them. Don't discount the story that God is writing in their life. And we all get to be a part of it. I'm grateful that I had people who loved me and were patient with me as a child. A bratty pastor's kid growing up. And because of that patient, loving care, today I know so much about God's word. Because people took the time to invest in me and pour it in me. And kids, once you hear me, you listen, look up, look up here. Okay? Daddy is excited to see a children's ministry form here at Living Hope Church for you guys. And you have classes, and you have Bible lessons, and you have videos, and you have songs just for you. Pastor Dennis and I went over to uh, a place that we will start meeting in in a few months, and it's got great spaces for kids. We love you. We want you to know about Jesus. We're excited to share about it with you. And, and may we also be looking for that student, or, or college student, or young adult, or senior adult who comes into our fellowship. And they need someone to show them grace to help them find Jesus. They might be totally blind. And they need you to help, help them get those blinders off by the power of the Spirit. Or maybe it's, hey, has God commissioned you to use your gift? How can I help you use your gift to the church? We are here to help others follow Jesus. Pastor Dennis is going to come. He is going to direct our thoughts to our Savior, who we love. Our risen Savior, who we are celebrating, he's the hero of this passage and, and every part of Scripture. And he's going to read some Scripture, he's going to lead us in prayer, and we're going to transition, I don't want to use that word, because it's just a continuation of our worship, of communion. The fellowship that we have in common because of the Savior, and we have a new covenant today. Aren't you grateful that we have a new covenant today with God? Based on his blood, based on his grace don't have to worry about keeping the law this morning. Jesus has done that. We're here by his grace. Let's celebrate him together. Pastor Dennis, would you come and help us to uh, have our hearts prepared?